comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and you can find that in your pew Bibles in page 1105. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brothers, Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, come from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, well, let's uh, take a seat and we'll have a look at this passage. Let's pray to God for his help. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider this passage in 1 Corinthians, that you might open up our eyes and hearts to see who you are and see who we are. We pray, Lord, that we'll receive this word as it really is, the word of God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. My friends, I want you to imagine with me. Imagine you're at a a big Roman cosmopolitan, a city that has a bustling port. And so if it's a city with a bustling port, it means it's a wealthy city. It's a city where there's trade, where the economy is going well. This is a city you're at. It's a city known for its arts, for its culture. It's a, a, a centrepiece in that region. It's in fact a melting pot of many cultures. There are Greeks in this city, there are Syrians, there are Roman veterans and there are of course Jews as well. Now in this large city, you're in this great city, there's a church in this city. It's a young church, it's a small church, only several years old. But this church has grown. There are people from all walks of life in this church. There are the elite of the society, there's the poor of the society in this same church. From all walks of life, all of them have been gripped by the gospel of Christ and they're being converted, they're coming to faith, they're becoming Christians. Sounds like a great church, doesn't it? A church in this big city that was bringing people from worshipping pagans into the knowledge of God. And now you're at this city and then you're at this church and you, and you come closer. You step inside the church and what do you notice? 
Well, the things you notice at this church brings a shock to your life. In fact, the things you notice in this church would even shock the pagan world. The pagan world, they look upon this church and they think, we won't even do those things. They're disgusted by it. In this church, what happens? Well, in this church, a man lives with his stepmother and no one speaks out. In this church, there are people who behave promiscuously, immorally. In this church, they have distorted views of marriage. In this church, there are people suing each other, taking each other to court. In this church, they've even given up on the resurrection. They live with the laxity and the carelessness of the pagan world around them. It's just hard to imagine that this was happening inside this church. And that's not even all of it. There's a whole lot more. Now imagine such a church. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Does does such a church ever exist? Does it exist today? But you see, this is the very church we come to meet as we study the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a church filled with all troubles and issues and failures. And so we'll see this church as we study this book over the next several months. Now just imagine, this is the church... And this church is being audited. Not their accounting books, not, not their finances, but they're being audited, being assessed, assessed on church life. What do they do? The goals and purposes of this church. Now imagine they were to be assessed. How do you think they would fare, this church? Now imagine it was the Apostle Paul doing the assessment, doing the auditing. I mean, for Paul, this was his church. This was his baby. This was the church he planted when he went to Corinth. He stayed with this church for 18 months. He was actually thinking of going, but God told him to stay because there are the elect in this city. There are more God wants to save. And so he stays there for 18 months. And and this church, he he loves them, he shepherds them, he teaches them, he, he pastors them. And so this is his baby. And after 18 months, he left, he went to Ephesus, not too far away, but then he hears all these reports. Now, what do you think Paul would do? What do you think Paul would say? What would his assessment be now on this church? Only a few years later, we see this letter is his assessment on this church. And so how does it begin? So let's all turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll work through most of these verses. How does he begin? Now, it's actually quite surprising what he says of this church right from the onset is actually quite profound that he will say these things. He begins by reminding them who he is, firstly, and who they are, secondly. Firstly, he's been away from this church for several years now, and since then, this church, they're doubting his credibility, they're doubting his authority. And so Paul makes clear, plainly clear, right from the beginning, that he writes to them, he ministers to them, with nothing less than the authority of God himself. He calls himself an apostle. That means he's one sent by, sent one, the one sent by Christ. And it is God who gives him this commission, this charge and this responsibility. He's reminding them, I'm the apostle of God. Verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is God's will, this is God's purpose. And our brother Sosthenes. So that's the first thing he does. Secondly, he reminds them of who they are. Now, despite the huge problems and issues that were coming out of this church, things that he's been hearing, he actually doesn't say he, to the punks in Corinth, to you fools in Corinth, 
to you, proud people in Corinth. What does he say? He reminds them of who they really are. It's actually quite profound that he would say these words. He says, they are nothing less than the church of God, a church that was brought into existence by God, a church that belongs to God, a church that is called by God. You see, when God calls anyone, when God calls anyone, what that means is that God calls that person out of darkness, out of the hold, the grip of sin and death, into life, into his kingdom. That is the calling of God. The transition from one kingdom to another. The kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so to be called by God, they are called by God, it means that they have been made Christian. To be called by God is to be made Christian. It's to be saved. And for what purpose? Well, to be set apart for God, to be made holy, to be sanctified, to become saints. They are all the same word. To be holy, the holy ones, the sanctified ones, the saint, that's all the same word. They were called, brought out of darkness to be the saints of God. And so God calls them. Now, now to be called by God is not an invitation. God calls someone out of darkness and, and that person in darkness thinking, no, I'll, I'll have to consider your calling. No, it's not an invitation at all. It's, it's more like a summons. If you're called by God, you're brought from one kingdom to the other. You are saved. And so Paul here wants them to know you are called. You people who are so messed up, you people who are so broken, you have been called by God Almighty. Verses 2 and 3. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, that's the holy ones, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And now he greets them, grace and peace to you. From whom? Not just anyone. This is grace and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, they have the greatest privilege ever. As messed up as they are, this church, they have the greatest privilege of all. Blessed by God. Grace and peace from God. Now, these people are called by God, but not only that, we actually see more. What follows also seems quite out of place to speak of this church in this way. You see, he's received reports of how they're going and things are just not good. Big issues, big problems, big mess. There's division in this church. There's rivalry. They don't like each other. They're trying to make each other feel inferior or superior. There's the have and have-nots in this church. There's the elite and the dregs in this church. There's the sophisticated and the simple. There's the spiritual and those who appear not so spiritual. But yet Paul here, it's quite surprising, he finds something to give thanks for. But notice, notice, he doesn't thank them. I thank you, brothers in Corinth, for your diligence, for your devotion, for your godliness. Who does he thank? He thanks God for them, for what God has been doing in them, for God's grace upon them for enriching them in everything in Christ Jesus. He thanks God for what God is doing in them. God is changing them. God has summoned them out of darkness into light. God is making the difference and so he thanks God. Verse 4 to 6, we see this. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. You see, Paul is certain that these guys are saved because God has summoned them. And because they've been enriched in every way, Paul now goes on to say, none of you lack anything spiritual. None of you lack any spiritual gifts at all. 
You see, Paul is saying to them, there's no such thing as the have and have-nots. There's no such thing as those who are superior and inferior. You all alike have all the resources necessary to live out your Christian life as you wait the return of Christ. And so he says that, verse 7. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now despite the mess of this church, this was a messed up church, Paul was still hopeful. I mean, I read this and I find this profound. This is a broken church, a messed up, but Paul was hopeful. But you see, his hope was not misplaced again. His hope was not in them. He wasn't thinking, when these guys in Corinth, when they receive my letter, they're going to change. They're going to muster up the strength inside themselves. They're going to be suddenly devoted and disciplined and godly. You see, his hope was not in them. His hope was in God. The God who called them into existence is the God who will transform them. The same God who brought them into existence is the God who will perfect them and will present them blameless in the end. Now you have to think about that and that is profound. This was a messed up church. But that was his hope, that God will do all those things. And it should also cause us to think about the churches in our city. I mean, you've got big churches with thousands of people. You've got small churches with 20 old people. You see, you look at that and you think, one's better than the other, one's more spiritual than the other. No, no. They all lack nothing spiritual. They all lack no spiritual gifts. And they all will be presented perfect. They'll all get to the same place. We'll get to the same place if we believe in Christ, to the church with only 10 members. We'll get to the same place with the church that has 5,000 members. And so Paul makes this clear to them. doesn't matter what they're like. God will make the difference. David Jackman, a British theologian pastor, he puts it this way. The grace that saves them is the grace that will keep them to the very end. The grace that brings you to faith is the grace that will keep you. And so we see this, verses 8 to 9. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. You see, God has promised this and he will do it. God promises he will do it. And so as messed up as they are, Paul here actually sees them through gospel eyes, through gospel lenses. Quite amazing, isn't it? Quite profound. His first words weren't, you punks, you fools, you've gone off track, but yet he calls them saints. He says, you've been enriched in every way. So now given that they have been called by God, enriched in Christ in every way, is it surprising then that, that a church can be so messed up? I mean, should churches be this way at all? Well, of course the answer is no, right? But you can actually understand why churches do mess up. Just think about the makeup of the church, of any church. Think about the makeup of the people. Is it filled with people who have it all right, who's got it all right? Or is it filled with people who are broken, who are messed up, who struggle? Or are churches filled with the morally righteous? Or are churches filled with wretched sinners? Are churches filled with perfect people? Or are churches filled with forgiven people? You see, the answer is clear, isn't it? The church is not a museum for good people, but it is a hospital for the burdened, the weary, the broken, 
the needy. And so it's actually not surprising that churches can go wrong, that there are problems in churches. That's no excuse to go wrong, to do wrong, but it exists. And so what's the problem that Paul deals with here in this first chapter? What's the problem of this Corinthian church? Well, you see, this church is divided. It's a church where there is rivalry, where there are factions, where there is politics. Now, hard to imagine that there would be politics in church. Some of you get that, but not all. You see, Paul appeals to them here strongly. He appeals to them with the weight of Christ himself. He says, this is not on what you're doing. This is not right. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. Now, to agree with one another, that is literally to speak the same. You are of the same mind. You speak the same. So that there may be no divisions. Now, the word here is the word schismata, which is where we get the word schisms from. So that there won't be any schisms, any divisions amongst you. Amongst you, and why? So that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. He's seeing these divisions, the conflict, the rivalry, the politics in this church, and says, this is not on. This is not the way the church of God is meant to be. You see, the problem in this church was that there were four separate camps, four cliques, four different fan clubs, and there's a bit of childish bickering as well. My pastor is better than yours. My pastor, he studied at Jerusalem. Oh, my pastor is better than yours. He's, He's got a bigger head than your one. My pastor, he can speak in an accent I understand. He's better than your one. And so what do we see? Verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I followed Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And so what did this look like? Well, in the one corner over here, you have Paul as your leader. I follow Paul. He's the apostle who brought us to faith. He's the one who planted this church. He's the one we should follow. He's the one we should listen to. Not your guys. We should listen to Paul. And then in the next corner, back there, you have Apollos. This is the guy from the centre of learning. This is the guy from Alexandria, from Egypt. This guy went to the big university. We should listen to him. I mean, we, we suffer from this this mentality today too, don't we? That the big keynote speaker from New York, we want to listen. But the guy from Altona, who cares? The, the guy from London, we want to listen. But the guy at Surrey Hills, who cares, right? And so they're thinking, this guy Apollos from Alexandria, this guy knows his stuff. And so they listen to him and say, this guy's eloquent. He speaks so well. He's so wise. He's so charismatic. He's so engaging. I mean, Paul, he was so dull. I always fall asleep when Paul gave his sermons. In fact, I heard of one story. In another city, this guy by the name of Eutychus, you know what happened to him? He was listening to Paul preaching all night. He fell asleep. He dropped off the window over the ledge and he died. I don't want that to happen to me, so I follow Apollos. And then in the next corner over there, you have Cephas. Or the Apostle Peter. Now this, this Apostle, you're thinking, we must listen to this guy. He's better than your Apostle. He's better than that punk from Alexandria. We have Cephas. We have Peter. This guy lived with Jesus. He's the original 12. 
He's one of the first who saw the resurrected Jesus. And he's from Jerusalem, the mother city. And not only that, he's conservative, this guy. He's traditional. I mean, in his church, you won't see drums in his church. In his church, you only see the organ. He's conservative. I follow Cephas. And then in the final corner. Now, perhaps this corner with a bit of spiritual snobbery and perhaps with a sense of superiority. We, we don't follow humans like you guys. You, you all got it wrong. We follow Christ. We're spiritual. Christ speaks directly to us. We have it right. You see, they're not doing with the right motive either. But you see, underlying these four groups, these four factions, is really spiritual pride. It's pride amongst the followers, not amongst the leaders, you see. Paul and Apollos, they work together with Peter. There's no rivalry between the leaders. It was just amongst the followers. And this type of Christian rivalry and snobbery and cliques even, we perhaps see even today people band together behind some superstar Christian evangelist and preacher, some superstar overseas preacher. Don't know where he's from, but he's overseas, so he must be good. Now, now that's not to say anything bad about them. God can use them, and God does use them. You see, the problem does not lie with them. The problem lies with the followers. If I'm somehow connected to some big-note speaker, pastor, then somehow that gives me more cred. If I've met some preacher some big pastor. Somehow that gives me more glory. You, you see, for example, have you listened to Timothy Keller? What he said about church planting. Well, if you want to be a serious Christian, then you better read that. You better listen to what he says. Otherwise, you don't know what you're doing in church. Or, or haven't you listened to Don Carson, what he taught about suffering? I mean, if you haven't, then you're lost. You will never understand suffering in this life. You must listen to him. Or haven't you read Jim Packer's Knowing God? How can you call yourself a Christian if you haven't? Now, I think there's some truth in that, but anyway, you should read that. But who do you listen to, you people here? You listen to John Huynh from Surrey Hills. What a joke. What a joke. No one can understand him. But you see, at the heart of what was happening in Corinth, it wasn't just bad conduct. It wasn't just bad manners. It wasn't disruptive church dynamics. It wasn't just childish behaviour. You see, at the heart of what was happening was far more serious, far more dangerous than they could ever imagine. It was actually a distortion of the gospel itself. It was misplacing allegiance and faith and trust not in the gospel of Christ, not in the Christ who was crucified, but in a person and his thoughts and his reasoning and his wisdom. And so Paul now, he sort of rips into them. I like this. He rips into them. You've marked it up. He says, verse 13, Is Christ divided, you nutcase? He didn't say that, but probably could have. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? Paul's saying, I can't save you. I didn't die for you. I can't do anything for you. And so he goes on to express how glad he was that he did not baptise that many of them. And what was his reason? Well, he doesn't want them to become fans of him. He wants to divert all attention and glory upon Christ. 
He wants them to focus their eyes on Christ. He doesn't want to empty the cross of its power. You see, it is the cross that saves. I'm not sure if you realise this, but it's not a good sermon that saves people. It's not an engaging sermon that saves people. It's not a powerful sermon that saves people. Nothing to do with the preacher at all. It is the cross of Christ. It is the message. You know, as poorly as it is conveyed, if it's there, it can save. That is the power of the cross. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. And so they were casting their eyes off Jesus onto someone else. And Paul's telling them, put your eyes back on Jesus. Don't be diverted from him. So, despite all their failures, Paul in this first chapter, he gives his assessment on this church. He audits this church. He actually sees them through the lens of the gospel. You have been called by God. You are enriched in Christ and so you cannot be divided. So that's Paul's assessment on the Corinthian church. But now let's think about us, about this church. If Paul were to look upon us, look at our church, what assessment would he give? If he were to audit us, what would he say? Would we fare any better than the Corinthian church? I mean, if Paul just looked at our website, he'll probably be pretty impressed. Our website, we've got a consistent logo. We've got colours that make sense and match and they look good. We've got two reverends at this church. Must be impressive. Two services. We've got youth group with Christ. Paul looking at our website, it's probably pretty good. But let's just say Paul visited our morning service. Just say Paul visited our evening service. Just say Paul visited all our growth groups throughout the week. Visited our youth group, our creche, our Sunday school. Just say Paul even went along to the board meeting. Don't know why he would, but he would. No, it's important work at the board. Very important work. Just say Paul went along to the session. What would he think then? But now let's just say Paul gets in a bit deeper. He actually listens in on every conversation at church. He hears everything. He sees everything. What would he think then? Do you think Paul would be disappointed with us? What do you think? Do you think he would be pleased with us? What would he say if he was to write a letter to St Stephen's Surrey Hills? Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the church of God in Surrey Hills, to the punks and fools and proud in Christ. Is that what he'll say? Well, I suspect Paul would say the very same thing to the Corinthian church, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. And would he say, I always thank God for you because you are so diligent You're so disciplined, you're so devoted, you have wonderful gifts, you're involved in so many of the ministry teams. I thank God for you because you are so good for you've been made poor and deprived in every way. Is that what Paul would say? Well, I suspect Paul would say the exact same thing. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. 
I suspect Paul would write exactly those same words to us. You see, we too, if we are disciples of Jesus, if we are followers of him, if we profess that he is our Lord and Saviour, then we are saints. We are the holy ones. We are the sanctified ones. And we too are enriched. You see, that is what Paul would write. He sees us also in all our failures, in all our brokenness. He would see us through the lens of the gospel. Now, what this does mean then is the thing about being called by God as we have been, the thing about being summoned by God as we have been, it means that you are not normal. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you are not normal. You Christians are not normal people. You see, if you think about this, out of all the world, out of the seven billion people around the world, God has summoned you, out of all people, you, to faith. God has summoned you out of darkness to light. He has brought you to life, to eternal life. He has summoned you. Now, do you see how special you are? Do you see how marvellous this is? To belong to God. He called you to belong to him so that you might be holy, set apart for him and his purposes. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know whether we all feel this way or think this way throughout the week. I suspect many of us would see our week coming up as so normal, so bland, so dull, so normal. I wake up, I brush my teeth, I have breakfast or I wait for Yvonne to make breakfast, I go to work and then I have lunch which Yvonne packed for me and then I come home and Yvonne makes dinner for me. No, I do some stuff and, and then I have a shower, I go to bed and then the next day begins. It goes around and around and around. It feels so normal, life feels so normal. So bland, so dull. But you see, you are all far from normal. If you understand this, as messed up as the Corinthians were, they were far from normal and so us as well. You are not normal because you belong to God. He has summoned you, he has called you and he has enriched you in every way. And so it is with our church. As ordinary as we appear, as, go, as churches go, we meet, we sing some songs, we pray, we read the Bible, we hear a sermon, we drink, we eat, we have fellowship, as normal as that looks and sounds. These are the activities of the saints of God. You are special. You are important to God. We are all important to God because we have been summoned by him. And so if this is the case then, then just like the Corinthian church, we must be united now, I suspect we don't have those same type of issues of division and rivalry where we have four different camps. But I wonder whether in this church there are groups, exclusive groups. This is for the cool ones who have hairstyles this way. Do, do we have that, that type of thing in our church? Do we have cliques in our group? Well, Paul would say, this must not be. Is Christ divided? This must not be. And more than that, we must be united behind Christ, around Christ, under Christ. We're not united behind any pastor or preacher. We don't have a, a Chris's fan group and a John's fan group. That must not be. We, we don't have uh, fan groups of famous preachers. In fact, all preachers, all pastors, all ministers are not to point to themselves but to point to Christ. Look at him, not at me. Listen to him, follow him, trust in him, not at me. 
that's what a good pastor does because salvation does not depend on the person preaching but on the message of the cross. And dare I say, we are also not united even around our denomination. It's not our Presbyterian denomination that unites us, we must remember. It is Christ who unites us. It is Christ who unites us. Now remember the previous Archbishop of Sydney, Peter Jensen, when he was Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Sydney, he he said these words and, and and I found it so encouraging, so good to hear. He was quite forthright in saying, though he was the head, you know, the, almost the Pope of the Anglican Church in Sydney, he said, I'm a Christian first. I'm a Christian first. Anglicans, that can go second. I'm a Christian first. Why? Because it is Christ who saves. We must remember that. It is Christ who saves. We cannot deviate our eyes away from Christ at all. Our eyes must be focused on him. And so how are we going as a church? What will Paul's assessment be on us? Well, you've been called by God. You've been summoned by God. You've been enriched in every way in Christ. And so remain united under the one who saves you, under the only one who can save you. Christ must increase. We all must decrease. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your profound mercy and your profound grace that you would call us, you would summon us out of darkness into your light. Help us to see how privileged and how honoured it is of what we have, that we might be the saints of God, the holy ones, the sanctified ones. And so help us all to live consistently to our calling to be Christians who belong to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.